Hello, we're Scott and Maureen Proctor, and this is Meridian Magazine's Come Follow Me podcast, where today we're going to be studying Exodus chapters 1 through 6, that intriguing story of Moses. And we have with us today a special guest to help us explore these scriptures. And that guest is our dear friend, Daniel Peterson, who's a newly retired professor. Now, is that an oxymoron, newly retired? I don't know what that means, actually. <laughs> Because I don't think you're anything, you're nothing. I think you forgot. You forgot what the meaning of the word is. But a newly retired professor of Islamic studies at Brigham Young University, where he founded and led the Middle Eastern Texts Initiative. He has studied and taught in Jerusalem and Cairo. He feels very comfortable in the Middle East. He's the author of several books and the first and current editor-in-chief of Interpreter, a journal of Latter-day Saint faith and scholarship. He also has a daily blog on Pathios called Sike Non. He also has recently become a film producer with his wife Deborah of the feature film Witnesses of the Book of Mormon and then a companion documentary called Undaunted. Now, we'll put the links in our script uh, for those of you who are listening so you can find Dan online, including a link to him on Meridian Magazine. I think, Dan, that Egypt is such a part of your life, you probably mutter ancient phrases and Arabic things at night. I don't know if Deborah could uh, avow <laughs> to that, but it's certainly a part of your whole being, isn't it? It is. That's right. When you, when you talk in your sleep, is it in English? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> well, today we want to explore these these scriptures, and we start with such an interesting idea that now there was a pharaoh in Egypt who knew not Joseph. So can you give us some context about this? How long has it been, to any degree that we can figure it out, since the days of Joseph? And yeah. what has happened to the ruling dynasty in Egypt? Yeah, you know, the problem is complicated, probably made insoluble to an extent by the fact that we don't have a name for this pharaoh. He's simply called Pharaoh, and that was simply a title, like the king or something like that. It literally means great house in, in Egyptian, uh, referring to the royal palace. So we don't know his name, and a lot depends upon who this pharaoh was, and we just don't know. There are lots of speculations I've seen Tutmosis II, I've seen Seti I, you know, uh, different names like that. Um, uh, We don't know. But what this suggests to me is that there has been a change in the rulership of Egypt. And the Hebrews who rose to such prominence under one pharaoh in Joseph's time now are seen probably as collaborators, foreign infiltrators, traitors, uh, you know, who were loyal to a previous regime. Uh, some have suggested that they may have been involved with uh, a king of the Hyksos, the shepherd people, um, who briefly ruled Egypt, but then eventually were overthrown. So if, if that's true, and you have a native Egyptian pharaoh coming back to power, then he would see these people as collaborators with the deposed regime. They would, what, what was once a, a feather in their cap is now a liability that they were too closely associated with the previous government. It could simply be a change in dynasty. We don't know. But this is a pharaoh, I, I think, you know, when it says he knew not Joseph, maybe he didn't even know the name. But very possibly, I think what it's saying is he didn't, he knew the Hebrews, he knew something of the story, and because he knew the story, he didn't like them. 
They were foreigners, they're not like Egyptians, and they were implicated in a group that he or his immediate predecessors had overthrown. So it, it puts them in an awkward political situation. Well, that's, that brings me to the thought, you know, and the question, are the Egyptians justified in being worried about the Hebrews? They're, they're growing in population, but is there a justifiable reason for this fear of the Egyptians? Well, I would think that there might be in the sense that you have a foreign people apparently multiplying very rapidly in your midst, and uh, they could be like a fifth column. I, I don't know if people use that term anymore, but, but the idea of a group within your boundaries that's not loyal. I mean, this is the problem for good or ill afflicted the Japanese Americans and led to their being in internment camps during World War II. That You had a foreign population within your borders and their loyalty was rightly or wrongly suspect. Um, and if, for example, it was the Shepherd Kings, who may, the Hyksos, who may have been distantly related, certainly culturally related possibly to the, uh, to the Hebrews, then if they were to come back and the memory of them was still fresh, then you'd say, well, gosh, they, they could form an alliance with these people who are right here in our backyard living in our midst, and then we could be fighting a two-front war, not only against foreign invaders, but against these people behind us. Uh, and so that's, that's an issue. I think. Now, I, I suspect, actually, when uh, the Pharaoh goes on and says, you know, they're more numerous than we are, I think he's stoking the fires of paranoia. That may be a bit of an exaggeration. It's hard to believe that even after several hundred years, the, uh, the Israelites have outnumbered the native Egyptians. But he's making the point that yeah, this is a large group. This is not an inconsiderable group. And if, if they became enemies, we'd be in trouble. It's interesting to me um, that there are not much in the way of external evidence that the Hebrews were ever in Egypt. What do you think about that? Well, you know, I, th I think that one factor may be that uh, Egyptian records praise the king, propagandize for the king, glorify the king. We know, for example, that Ramses II went up and fought a major battle up at Chachemish, up with the Hittites. And, uh, and you go to the temples in Egypt and you see these wonderful sculptured reliefs of, of the triumphant Ramses defeating the Hittites pretty much by himself um, in his huge chariot, and they're just all falling down dead before him. But we now have the peace treaty that he signed with the Hittites, where it's clear he didn't win. Uh, if anything, he may have lost. At best, it was a draw. Uh, but you come back to Egypt and you tell this grandiose story of your heroism and your triumphs, uh, somewhat, if I dare say this, somewhat like uh, the way I suspect that Russians right now are hearing an account of the, the war in Ukraine uh, from their news media. And he's certainly not going to tell about the time there was this slave uprising and they got away and they made us look like idiots and, uh, you know, they, they beat us at every turn. That's never going to make it into the records. That's not part of the Ministry of Propaganda's duty to tell those stories. Well, and it's interesting, too, that it's the victors who write history. That's right. And uh, even though the Hebrews were the victors in this case, they wrote their history in scriptures, but it's right. not going to be on the walls of Egypt. In Egypt, uh, as far as they're concerned, they're the victors. Anyway, they're going to portray themselves that way. So, you know, I, I, think, I think they had a legitimate concern. Their way of responding to it is interesting, though, because one way that you could you know, you could neutralize the possible threat of the Israelites would be to treat them well. 
and make them think this is a really good place to be. You know, why would I want to fight against Pharaoh? But they choose the opposite, which is to oppress them, which, if anything, will make them less loyal and more inclined to join with a, with a foreign invader, or, or in this case, to join with God against them. They're, they're eager to get out. Let's talk about the birth of Moses for a minute. Uh, Moses is born of Levite parents, and he is born at a time when the Egyptians are not very excited about any Hebrew male being born. Yeah. Uh, apparently, they're drowning them, throwing them into the Nile. And so uh, Moses uh, is put in an ark by his mother in this ark that's all you know, filled out with pitch so that it's very um, waterproof, and and then it's floated amongst the the reeds there, right near the the place where Pharaoh and his family are living. So tell us about. Right. There's got to be some symbolism in this, and you know his name and everything. Oh, I think there is. Um, you know, the ark. The word that's used for ark there is the same word that's used for the ark of Noah. It's really the only two places that it occurs, but I think it's significant that in both cases you have the uh, salvation, if you will, the, the temporal salvation of the earthly prophet uh, or the, the earthly line that's, that, you're, that the Lord is trying to preserve in this ark floating in, uh, in the water. Um, and you know, th- there are actually similar stories elsewhere. I don't know that they're true. I don't know if they were borrowed, but there's a story of Sargon of Akkad in Mesopotamia who also was hidden in an ark. Um, and uh, there's, there's even a story much later from medieval Islamic uh, tales of a, of a young man who, uh, who was born as a baby, but the uh, ruler wants to kill him, and so the mother puts him in a boat and sets him afloat, and then he lands on an island and rises to greatness. Uh, so this is a this is a motif. Doesn't mean it's not literally historically true in this case, but it it has echoes in a lot of stories of the the person who who survives despite the fact that everyone is trying to get him. But but I think the fact that it's the same word used for the uh, uh, for the Ark of Moses, if you will, and the Ark of Noah is really, really interesting. Um, and you said something about the name of Moses. Uh, the The Bible says that the that the name comes from the fact that he was drawn from the water. Um, and it is true that the name uh, of Moses in Hebrew sounds something like the verb uh, to draw, the Hebrew verb to draw. I suspect, though, there may be something else going on, and there's probably a bilingual pun going on. I think maybe his name was given to him by the Egyptians, and but we're not getting his full original name because that that name Moses is common to a lot of names of pharaohs too. You see it in Ramesses. Uh, if you pronounce it a little differently, you've got the M S E S thing. You see it in names like Tutmos or Tutmosis the first, the second, the third, uh, Ahmos. Um, it means child. And so Ramesses means the child of Ra, the sun god. And I've wondered if Moses wasn't given an original name that had a pagan deity's name in it. And the Hebrews have dropped that. So he just remains as Moses without the Ra or the Tut Moses. That's the god Thoth, the god of scribes, or there are others. Um, And so we just get that name. And then they explain it with a Hebrew explanation. But I think it's... It's evidence of his of his uh, of his Egyptian upbringing. I mean, the the person who raises him in her household is the daughter of the pharaoh, so she might have given him an Egyptian name. 
that leads to my next question, which is um, what impact might this have had on Moses being raised in this environment where obviously he could be educated and understand all the ideas of that world. And at the same time, what is what part is his Hebrew identity playing in as he grows up? Because he defends this Hebrew who is being smitten uh, unfairly and unjustly. I mean, I, I imagine that this man's life is on the line, and this is when Moses defends him and kills the Egyptian and has to leave. But there are these two ideas, and it makes me wonder also about how much the people had been able to keep their covenant identity or their belief in God. Yeah, the, the people of Israel seemed to know something about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I mean, those names are recognizable to them. They have some sense of the tradition in which they've been raised. How much, we don't know. Um, my bet is it was getting pretty sloppy that uh, they need, well, and I think the, the behavior of the Lord in, in subjecting them to the Mosaic law and so on and so forth is designed to bring them back, to sort of educate them um, back into the traditions and the way they ought to live and so on. But it's not altogether gone, and I think it's not altogether gone from Moses. I think the fact that he steps forward to defend the Hebrew man against an Egyptian indicates he might have felt some sense of solidarity with this person who was of his ethnicity, his people. But he would have also been raised amidst the splendors of, of pagan Egypt. And what that means for him is, as, as I suppose, uh, a prince um, in some ways, prince of Egypt, he would have been raised with the best kind of education that the royal house could provide. That would be the best in, in the world at that time. Uh, it also probably meant that he was trained in... Um, in fighting, warfare. The princes were military leaders. Uh, pharaohs did go out to battle, and the, the crown princes and the junior princes would all be trained in that sort of thing, too. So he knew Egypt inside and out from a very privileged perspective. He presumably spoke fluent Egyptian, uh, you know, knew all of those sorts of things, uh, but was trained to be a prince of Egypt to function in that household. So it's a, it's a pretty interesting thing. It reminds me a little bit of how useful such people are. Think of Paul later on, who, who has the advantage of being both a, a well-trained Hebrew of the Pharisees, but also having grown up speaking Greek and knowing Greek literature, and he's able to speak to people all around the Mediterranean. I mean, skills like that are rare, and they're useful. It seems like a very orchestrated upbringing. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, this is a case, I think, where the Lord foreordained it and put him in place to do what he was doing. He couldn't have done it simply as a leader of the, of the Hebrews. Um, he couldn't do it solely if he had no sense of being a Hebrew. Couldn't have done it solely from the vantage point of, of Pharaoh's court either. You know, uh, as I'm hearing all this, that he's surrounded by, you know, Pharaoh's family and this the riches of Egypt and the education that he received and all these things. When he has his, uh, I don't know whether it's his first vision, but a major vision with the Lord, and then the Lord withdraws his presence, and then yeah. he falls to the earth, and he takes a few hours to get himself, you know, where he can actually stand up again, and he says, now I know that man is nothing, which thing I never had supposed. Yeah. That kind of presupposes that he thought man was pretty cool, pretty something. Yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, he, he lived in the household of a, of a human god, the pharaoh, and, uh, you know, had everything that Egypt could afford. 
Uh, and so pretty cool being a member of the royal household, uh, that sort of thing. You just, and, and to be confronted with your nothingness, with, you know, to be made humble, I think. And I think even the experience of having to go out and serve as a shepherd in the Sinai, this is a real come down. Um, so he gets both sides of it. He, he sees the, the side of Pharaoh and the best that the earth has to offer. Pharaoh was probably for his day certainly one of the most powerful people in the world, if not the most powerful. Um, and yet he's also a shepherd and he has a vision of the whole universe where he realizes that um, uh, having all of Egypt is still pretty pathetic compared to the cosmos. <laughs> it's just not much. You know, there was one other point that I wanted to make if I could. I get a kick out of the fact that Pharaoh is trying to, trying to take defensive measures against the Hebrews. And so what he thinks he'll do is to eliminate the boys. He's worried about the male side of the Hebrew uh, family. So what happens? He's defeated in the measures he takes by women. You know, it's uh, uh, Moses' mother. Well, first of all, it's the, it's the, the midwives who come up with this phony story about, well, we just, you know, we can't just do, we can't do what you want us to do. We can't kill the boys. And uh, these Hebrew women, they give birth too fast. We can't get there, you know. Uh, and and then uh, Moses' mother hides him. And then it's Pharaoh's own daughter, his own daughter, who saves Moses from the bulrushes, the reeds along the River Nile. So he thinks he's being really clever by neutralizing the masculine side of things. So fine, he's defeated by the feminine side of things. I think that's kind of funny, actually. I do, too. That's great. It really is. Now, it's interesting to me that the Hebrews are suffering under this bondage, and they pray for help in the name of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Yes. So it does feel like this covenant is somewhere in their minds and hearts, and it's a covenant that will provide them deliverance. Because then again, when God talks to Moses, he tells Moses that he has heard the cries, and it's because of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who will respond and deliver the people. So this is real covenant material. I'm fascinated by that, your comment. Yeah. No, that's absolutely right. I don't know how how well they were keeping the rules that had been handed down, but they did remember that they were the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and that's the way they know the God. This is the one who appeared to those patriarchs, and so they know that they're tapping back into the patriarchal religion of their ancestors. And I think that's really important, and it it indicates both God's faithfulness to the covenant that he'd made, and to an extent, I think they had a lot of work to do, but to an extent, a, a bit of loyalty on their part. They still kind of had an identity. They knew who they were, even if uh, they needed to be re-educated a lot after spending all that time in Egypt. So I, I, I think that's extremely important, and it connects Exodus to Genesis. It, it tells us that, that Exodus is a continuation of the story of Genesis. Otherwise, you might wonder, well, okay, so what's going on here? Who's this Moses? Where did he come from? But we know who these people are. They're the descendants of the people described in the previous book. So Moses goes to this mountain. He's uh, at the mountain of the Lord, it's called. Uh, do you think this Mount Horeb is the same as Mount Sinai? Yeah, I mean, what points do you see here? 
I, I think I think it probably is. There's there are some people who've tried to argue that there are two sacred mountains in the general larger Sinai region, but I I like the law of well, just being a little more modest here, assuming there's one and it has two names. We know that that's true with Jethro, who has at least one other name, maybe two others. Uh, it, it, there are multiple languages and dialects going on here and people talking about things in different ways. It wouldn't bother me at all to think that uh, Mount Sinai, the one that we recognize as traditional Mount Sinai, is Horeb. I think they probably are the same. But we don't know exactly which mountain it was. There's a traditional Mount Sinai. That, uh, and here I can give a, a really useful practical tip maybe for listeners. Um, if, if they ever are in a position to climb it, uh, my advice is take your time. Because I've climbed it multiple times. I, I do find it's, it's gotten higher as I've gotten older. Um, but... <laughs> But I remember it's the first those last thousand steps. Right, the the first time I was awakened in the middle of the night, and they said, "You want to hurry up there, you know, to catch the sunrise." I hurried up, and I was there hours before sunrise. It was freezing cold; I couldn't see anything. So now I tell people, take time to smell the roses if you're climbing. There are no roses. There's nothing. But take your time. You don't need to hurry. Um, but it's a. But then there's another mountain right next to it called Jebel Katarina that. Uh, I got up to the top of Sinai the first time, and there was a really bright establishment on top of the mountain right next to it. And I thought, good grief, I've taken the wrong turn. Um, and I thought, what is it, some kind of revolving restaurant? It was really brightly lit up. Turned out it was an Israeli uh, radar operation. But uh, I thought I'd climbed the wrong mountain in the middle of the night. Um, anyway, we don't know where it is. We don't know for sure that there weren't two, but I think there was probably just one. I think it's fascinating too, and we've we've climbed it too a number of times. And when when uh, we first climbed it, the natives told us, uh, "You don't need to use the flashlights. You will get used to the starlight." And we <laughs> thought, "How can you see by starlight?" And we learned that you really can. I mean, yeah. I was so amazed that you in that place where the canopy is so bright, uh, you can walk by starlight, and that was That's a really right. exciting thing for us. Yeah, there's no pollution at all. So Moses is out tending the sheep, and he sees something bright and goes toward it. And there, of course, is the burning bush. Why a burning bush? Are there multiple symbols for what this might also mean? Why not just a direct first vision like Joseph Smith had? I'm not so sure that he didn't have it. It says that he's afraid to look upon the face of God. And at one point in the King James Version, it says the angel of God is there. The JST says the presence of God. But then at other points, even in the King James Version, it says God. So was God there in the burning bush? I suspect that he was. Um, and, and also, I have sort of a revisionist take on the burning bush. Um, and, and it's this. Um, I think it may have just been the brilliant light, the same light that Joseph Smith saw in his first vision. Now, there, there's a famous book written by the historian William Manchester about the 14th century, the disastrous 14th century, he called it. But it's called A World Lit Only by Fire. And the point of that title is that they didn't see any bright light except fire. The stars, the moon, the sun... And fire, that was it. They didn't have electricity or anything like that. So any bright light that you see, well, what are you going to compare it to? It's like fire. Um, was it fire? Was it really a flame? 
burning at the bush, or was it just a brilliant light that to the eye of an ancient person, well, it's so bright, it's got to be fire. That's the only bright light I know. Joseph Smith also describes in one of his versions that it looked to him like the woods were on fire. Yes. Which is an interesting comparison. Because he lived in a world lit only by fire, too. And we saw that bright light coming down to him. In, In one of the accounts, he actually indicates that he was a little bit terrified. What would happen when it touched the trees? Uh, where they just burst into flame, and there he is in the middle of the forest. Uh, but he knows only fire as a bright light. We could compare it to an incandescent light, or, you know, we've got a whole lot of things that we know of. We, we light everything up at night, but they didn't have that. It was fire or nothing. So I've wondered if it wasn't just the light that is familiarly described. I, when I say familiarly, I don't want to downgrade it. Everyone describes it as absolutely indescribable. Um, but it's a, it's a light that, that is bright even in the daytime, above the brightness of the, the noonday sun, people will say. And I think that may have been what he saw. And, and so I wouldn't be surprised if he actually did see God, but was terrified at the sight. I love how the Lord calls his name. He says, Moses, Moses. And Moses says back to him, here am I. Yes. And that, uh, that is all through the scriptures. This here am I is a covenant phrase. And, yeah. and Tell us about that a little bit. Well, the most famous one, and of course the primordial one, is the here am I in the premortal council, um, where the Lord is asking, whom shall I send? And the answer is, here am I. Um, it's, the, it's the voice of the, the ordained person, the ordained messenger, or, or in that case, the Savior himself, uh, accepting the call. So you get it here with Moses. You get it with Samuel, the, the young boy Samuel. Uh, when uh, the Lord calls to him and he says, here am I. Uh, it's the readiness to accept the calling, to, to go forward on the mission assigned. So, you know, powerful, powerful uh, words and, and echoed throughout the scriptures. And what do they mean? Well, that I'm present, it's not only I'm here, but I think uh, more than that, here am I, I am here to listen to what you have to say. I am here to accept the orders that you give. Uh, when the Savior accepts um, and says, here am I, he's not just identifying where he is in the premortal crowd. He's saying, I am the one who will accept this, this mantle, this charge. And at the same time, I think it's so interesting that God also says, here am I. Like in Isaiah, yeah. you'll call him and he'll answer, here am I. So to me, it seems to signify this incredible covenant connection. And probably the essence of the covenant is this connection that it gives us with God and with others. Yeah. But with God, he He is there for us. And our, our part is to say, I know you will be. I will trust that you'll be there for me. And by the same token, here am I. I will do what I'm called to do. I, I've learned this trust in this loving relationship. And I know, I know that here am I are really these three Hebrew words that basically mean loving kindness. Yeah. And then sort of behold, I'm, I am here. And then the covenant. Yeah. So that here am I. When people see it in the scriptures, they should say, aha. This is talking about the covenant. Yeah, there it is again. And, and of course, in the covenant, we know that God will be there for us. The question is, where will we be? And, uh, you know, when we say, here am I, it means I'm accepting my part of it. The Lord is there and will be there. The only person who's likely to break the covenant will be us, will be one of us, not, not God. He won't. And that readiness is all. 
So Moses is concerned as he's getting this calling, and he says, you know, when I go to the people and they ask me, you know, who sent you? Who is this God? You know, what, what shall I tell them is your name? And, um, and that's, a, that's a legitimate question for Moses. And why is that a legitimate question? <laughs> well, because the world that he lives in is absolutely rife with gods. Egypt has more gods than I can count. I mean, it, I keep hearing new names of gods that I hadn't run across before. Uh, the important ones, Ra and so on, we know about these, but there are little gods of almost every little body of water and the god of the river Nile and the god of this and the god of that. And and so when, when you go to an audience that is steeped in Egyptian tradition, and I suspect that by the time he comes along, the Israelites have also kind of been infected by this. You have to identify it now. Okay, God sent you. Like which one? Uh, you know, and and uh, the Pharaoh even asked, "Well, who is this? I don't know this guy. I know lots of gods, but that one I don't know." So he has to identify specifically which one it is, and then then God will make the point through the through the wonders, the plagues, and so on, that he is the real God who has power over all of the others however you conceive of them, whether they're just fictional or, or if they're real. Even if they're real, he's more powerful than they are. Um, so it's important that he identifies himself, but he identifies himself with a kind of mysterious statement that uh, that people have puzzled over for years. Um, I am that I am. Tell them I am hath sent you. Um, this is one way that he identifies himself. And... Uh, and it's an interesting phrase, ehya asher ehya, uh, I am that I am, or I am that I will be, or I will be what I will be. Um, Hebrew doesn't have tenses uh, in the same way that Indo-European languages do, and so it can be almost past, future, and present at the same time. Uh, the, the Greek Greek is different. Is Greek's an Indo-European language, so the Septuagint renders it as "ego emi," I am ho'on, I am being, or something like that. I exist. Uh, I I always exist. Uh, and uh, you could write, and people have written books and books and books on on the question of what this means and how to unpack it. Uh, that he is real in a sense that all the gods of Egypt are not. Um, there are lots of things that you could say about that. It's a really powerful thing, and Jesus echoes it in John, uh, I should have looked it up, John 8, I believe, uh, where the people are gathered around demanding of him what, uh, what, who he is and all that sort of thing. And then he says uh, something about Abraham. They say, well, you're not even 50 years old. How can you have seen Abraham? And he says, before Abraham was, I am. And at that point, they take up stones to stone him. Because they know what he's doing. He's echoing that phrase from Exodus, the I am phrase. He's saying, basically, I am divine. I am God. I, you could say, I am the one who spoke to you, who addressed you uh, in Egypt and brought you out of Egypt. It's a stunning con conjunction. Oh, it really is. And you can see um, how enraging that would have been to the Jews because they would not say the name of Yahweh. Right. Right. Or and and um, they don't even spell spell it out. In fact, it shows up through the rest of the Old Testament as a uppercase but small Lord. 
Right. Because they they won't say the name, and so basically, this is something and a very sacred moment. And I, I love the implications for us personally because it seems to suggest that that he is for us. Yeah. It, it's the ultimate. It's the ultimate security. Yeah. You don't have to worry about this world that you're in and all the things that are so difficult because I am. Yeah. You can rely on him because other things come to be and cease to be, but he doesn't. I am what I will be. I will be what I am. I, you know, however to take this, as I say, people have argued about it. It's a, it's a really, I won't say it's grammatically difficult. It's just almost inscrutable. Um, but it, it means that he really is, and he is steady and a rock, and you can rely upon him. The, the name Yahweh, which we often call Jehovah, which really is a very inaccurate way of pronouncing the Hebrew, um, is probably related to this, uh, to this phrase, I am that I am. Uh, Yahweh seems to be a variant form. It may be a third person, to give the technical term, it's a third person singular present or, or a future verb. And some people have even said it's actually part of a phrase originally, um, Thu el Yahweh Sabaot. So we, so we hear the, the term, the Lord of hosts. But it may mean something like the Lord who creates the hosts, God who creates the hosts, or something like that. So that Yahweh is a verb, not just a noun. It's, it's actually a, a verb being used as a noun. But no one know, knows for sure. Um, we don't know exactly where it comes from or how to how to align it with other divine terms but it it's probably connected with this passage in Exodus you know i can't help but uh think about an experience that we had down when we were um in Jerusalem at at the western wall we were on that side where the kind of you can stand behind this little wall that you can look down into the plaza where everyone is is praying and and dancing around the torah and all these things are happening that are so jubilant and and wonderful and and uh, this man came up to us and he just started talking to us and he started talking about Moses and he just uh, he he was Jewish he was I think he was an Orthodox Jew if I remember correctly and he he could only see Moses as the prophet the everything everything goes back to Moses everything centers in Moses all things come to Moses, all things are Moses, and he was just so, I've never seen anyone so Moses-centric in my life, but, uh, but the Jews uh, really do tie themselves to Moses, the giver of the law, and, uh, and we'll talk about that in later podcasts, but uh, how do we know that a prophet is a prophet? Do we, do we look for signs, or you know, what, is, what is it here that we <laughs> can see? Clearly, well, well, Moses comes to the Israelites. He he wants to know how will they how will they know that I'm a prophet, and instead of just some guy who's just yapping and making things up for who knows whatever reason or or maybe just nuts, and the Lord gives him some signs to show them, which I think may reflect the spiritual state that they're in, that they need signs, um, but that's not the ideal way to uh, <laughs> to judge a prophet. Although in a way you can say it is. I mean, I one of the reasons I know Joseph Smith is a prophet is because of the Book of Mormon. If you will, that's sort of his sign. That's that's something where for the life of me, I cannot come up with any natural explanation for it. Uh, I So I'm thrown back upon the divine explanation for it. And if the Book of Mormon is true, then Joseph Smith is a true prophet because he's the one who brought it. 
Um, so, so in a way, it's it's not so low. But I mean, one way that you know that a prophet is true is as as we're always taught in the, in the church. Um, you test his word. You test what he has to say. Um, does it bring peace? Does it bring joy? Is your life better because of following him? Um, now that's speaking generally because we'll run across a case very quickly here where the Israelites' lives are complicated by following Moses. So it doesn't mean in the short term things will always be better. But on the whole, is your life better to his words ring true when you pray? Does the Lord confirm them to you? Uh, not just has Russell Nelson put his hand in his coat pocket and then brought it out and it's leprous, then he puts it back in and it's not. We don't ask for things like that from, from him. Didn't ask for things like that from Joseph Smith. But uh, but there are signs that will follow those that believe. Um, but they usually follow belief. They're not the things that give you faith. There are plenty of people who saw Moses uh, do great miracles and then basically left the faith when he got them over into Sinai. That's not a source of lasting conversion. I think it's so interesting that we see a lot of Moses' development as a prophet. Because when the Lord calls him to lead the children of Israel out of Egypt, he demurs. He says, I, I can't do this. He says, I, I can't raise my voice. You know, I, I don't even feel comfortable talking. And I'm not sure exactly what that means, because he's obviously had this amazing life, but he doesn't even feel like he can be his own spokesman. And we watch him progress and go go to the Lord and say, now they're mad at me and they don't believe me and et cetera, et cetera. And we watch him progress to the point that he can raise his, his hand and through priesthood power, the Red Sea is parted. So this is development. This is to me a, a real testimony to what the Lord can do with with someone who is willing. And obviously a prophet is a special case, but it demonstrates what the Lord is doing with all of us. I, I agree with that. I think you see his development, his confidence. You know, the, the more you rely upon the Lord and he comes through for you, uh, the more your faith is confirmed. That's, that's why I like, I've always liked the concept from Alma 32 of experimenting upon the word. That the way your faith is developed is if you act in a faithful way and you find that it to use a crass term, that it pays off, that it, that it's good, that things go right for you when you act that way. It's it's like developing a relationship with a friend, uh, very much the same sort of way. I I sometimes think that maybe we um, we sh I don't want to say we shouldn't use the word faith, but I wish sometimes it weren't so charged with religious meaning, because we do the same thing in ordinary life. You build a relationship with someone by by trusting that person. And the more you trust that person and he or she comes through, the stronger your trust becomes to where you see this is a really reliable person. I can depend upon him or her. Um, and, uh, and, and we do that with the Lord too, or should. We should uh, you know, trust in him and see that his promises are fulfilled. Moses is humble at the first, and that's prob probably commendable. Well, I think it is definitely commendable. Um, I would worry about somebody who says, yeah, call me because, man, have I got this. <laughs> you know, I know exactly what to do. Those are the sorts of people I kind of hope the Lord doesn't call. They're dangerous. They're too confident in their own abilities. Um, President uh, Heber J. Grant, I think, was uh, at one point saying, look, if you are ever given a calling and you feel absolutely able to do it, you're probably completely wrong. 
if you should feel some sense of inadequacy that will drive you to your knees just a little bit to, you know, and I'm sure he felt that becoming president of the church. Um, but uh, we, uh, we, we see those sorts of things all the time. My brother, I remember, said to me once that the time that his faith was absolutely the weakest was immediately after accepting the call to serve as a bishop. And he said the reason was he kept thinking, all my life I've looked up to bishops, and now I'm a bishop? What have they done? <laughs> you know, they've gotten this wrong. I'm not a bishop. How can I be a bishop? Um, and uh, again, I, I have a friend whom I won't name who now unfortunately has passed away, but he was a member of the 70, and, and he, when he was called, he was quite a bit younger than everyone else, and he said his first experience meeting with 70 and looking around, and he said everybody there was 10, 15, 20 years older than he was, and he thought, they've made a mistake. They've gotten, you know, the wrong person, maybe the right name, but the wrong person. What am I doing here? I don't have the experience all these men do. Um, and I think it's right to begin a calling that way, feeling a little overawed. Um, so Moses certainly did, but you see him change. You see him as he, as he calls upon the Lord, as he deploys the priesthood authority that he's been given, and it works, and he saves his people, then, then he becomes quite confident that the Lord has chosen him. Um, and uh, years ago, before my mission, I attended a fireside of a kind of odd group that I had begun to hang around with, and there was a man who came and spoke and he was in his 90s then, and I think, uh, anyway, I, I don't remember his name, and I've kicked myself over the years for not writing it down, but he told of being called as a patriarch. Well, he, had, he lived out in the middle of nowhere, and he'd never received his own patriarchal blessing, and he was terrified, um, and there were no manuals, no handbooks, nothing to tell him what to do, so um, for several months, nobody asked him for a blessing, and he thought, this is great. I get the prestige of being a patriarch, and I maybe will never have to give a blessing. Tremendous. Uh, and then some kid called him up and wanted a blessing, and immediately he's terrified again. So he went to the scriptures and began reading statements of the patriarchs and the blessings they gave and studying them. And then he wrote out a patriarchal blessing and basically memorized it to give to this boy when he came in. Um, you know, depending on himself, right? Uh, and then he said, when he put his hands on the boy's head, um, he felt impelled to open his eyes. And he said, there on the, on the wall facing me, I saw a line of letters written in light. It reminds me of the Urim and Thummim. But he says, there they were written there. And he said, it was a patriarchal blessing. And I would read off a line and it would disappear and the next line would appear. And he said, it was an entire blessing, complete I simply read it off, and uh, he said, now, did that ever happen to me again? No, never, but it didn't have to, because now I knew the Lord wouldn't leave me flat, that he would back me, and so I could rely on him and his inspiration. I didn't have to do it myself. So, you know, I'm thinking for Moses, it was a little bit like that, maybe, that, uh, that the Lord calls him, and he's thinking, I can't do it, and then he finds out that the Lord keeps his promises. That builds his faith. Speaking of the Lord keeping his promises and building our faith, Moses, when he first goes in to Pharaoh, of course, Pharaoh's response is anger, so mad, and he makes the tasks worse because he doesn't supply the straw anymore to make the bricks for the children of Israel. 
and so suddenly their situation is worse. Right. And I think it's an interesting thing that sometimes when the Lord is answering our prayers, our situation might get worse or seem worse, but it really isn't. The Lord has a long view and a big time frame, and what might seem very difficult for us is not necessarily going to be difficult. It might lead to the very blessing we've been seeking. I'm interested in what you think about that. Well, I, I think, again, that's exactly right. I don't think that we ought always to expect that everything will be a bed of roses when we commit to serving the Lord. There'll be demands upon us that, you know, that, again, we think we can't do. They're just beyond our capacity, or it's just too much work, or something like that. And and uh, and so we have to expect that, that, um, that there will be challenges. Um, and sometimes things do get worse. Partly, it's the devil trying to take you out. I mean... Every time a dispensation starts, uh, the person leading it, Moses in the book of Moses, Joseph Smith, the Savior himself goes out into the desert to begin his ministry, and who shows up? Satan. Um, I remember Hugh B. Brown telling about his call to be a general authority, and he said uh, that night, the night before the call came, I guess, he said he went through what he called the dark night of the soul, just really depressed for no particular reason just everything was wrong and his life was worthless and and then the call comes and it's president mckay um and he said i i knew then what all the depression and the darkness had been about he was under assault or the the missionaries going to england you know and they're in preston uh and what happens uh, an all-night assault of evil spirits and i think it's heber c kimball who asked later on well why did this happen uh, had we done something wrong? And Joseph says, no, 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 that's a, that's a good thing. The Savior was also there, but it's a mark of how you were disturbing the, uh, Satan's kingdom. And, uh, and so I think we have to anticipate that kind of thing. And, uh, and also I'll just say on another level, this is not external situations growing worse, but sometimes internally. I remember when I began to be seriously uh, interested, committed to the church. I grew up in a part-member family. My father wasn't a member. My mother was marginal. I began going to church on my own pretty much. She'd taken me a few times, but it wasn't regular. And then as I got more and more serious about trying to keep the rules, I noticed a curious thing. This is California in the 60s, with all that implies. My friends were all doing drugs and you know, leading these really quite wildly non-LDS lives, if you will, they didn't seem to feel any guilt at all. And I'd arrive three minutes late for sacrament meeting and feel just awful. And I blew it again. I'm late to sacrament meeting. And then I thought, now how is this helping me? I feel guilty over being three minutes late to sacrament meeting. My friends feel guilty over nothing, as far as I can tell. So how am I moving forward? But of course, that is moving forward. Um... If you're perfectly comfortable in a life of drugs and immorality, you're not exactly making forward progress on the path the Lord wants for you. But these little reminders that you need to improve, those are good. We won't always be delighted to receive them. It's not pleasant to be reminded, yeah, you didn't do a good job there. And the Lord kind of swoops in and tells you, you didn't, you didn't do what I wanted you to do. That's not pleasant, but it's really important. We've loved being with you today, our precious listeners. This is Scott and Maureen Proctor, and we've been here today with our guest, Dr. Daniel Peterson. Next week, we'll be studying Exodus chapters 7 through 13. 
Remember this day in which ye came out from Egypt. We're grateful to Paul Cardall for the music which accompanies this podcast and also to our producer, Michaela Proctor-Hutchins. Have a great week and see you next time.